Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Dr. Chelsea Anderson, and Chelsea is the owner and founder of 2% Certified CEA Vet, which is a relief veterinary service. Um, Chelsea and I get to cover a wide variety of things, um, really as it pertains to to being a vet, uh, what that that journey looked like for her, um, you know, when she knew that that was kind of the, the, the career path that she wanted to go down. Uh, we get to cover, you know, a lot of the, uh, well, I apologize. Uh, I guess I probably should have started with this, but terrible head cold right now. Uh, the spring, as much as I love it, is no, uh, friend of mine for allergies and, and all these things, uh, tend to wipe me out for a good portion of it uh, every year. But with uh, with Chelsea, her her job as a veterinary uh, a veterinarian has taken her to some incredible places all over the globe. And we get to talk about some of that. We get to talk about um, some of the ups and downs that come with being a veterinarian, um, you know, the day-to-day grind. And, and what CEA Vet is, uh, as I mentioned, a relief veterinary service, which so Chelsea is traveling all over the, the country to different practices uh, to help fill in when uh, doctors are out, uh, if they retire, uh, if there's some type of transition phase, <coughs> excuse me, whatever the case is. And uh, she has, you know, over the last couple of years, built up a network uh, of hospitals and clinics that she's visiting uh, throughout the country, um, and is just doing incredible work. Uh, it's it's really if you look at uh, if, if people are familiar with like a traveling nurse, and I think that Chelsea kind of touches on that. Where 
you know, you're here for two or three weeks and then you, you move on to the next place. And uh, I think it's it's really uh, innovative and cool uh, that Chelsea is kind of the only one out there that's doing this. Uh, and the hard work that she put in, uh, especially on the front end, to, you know, make a lot of these uh, connections uh, and relationships with these practices and these other doctors um, is a real testament to, you know, how much Chelsea cares about what it is that she's doing. Um, and then obviously we get to talk about the conservation side of things and how that all ties in. Um, you know, Chelsea grew up in a family um, about uh, a family that liked to hunt and to fish. And, um, you know, growing up on the East Coast, Chelsea is no stranger to the outdoors. Um, so we get to kind of uh, <clears throat> talk about that as well and, and all the work that she's doing or that she's uh, done not only in the U.S., uh, but, you know, overseas as well. Um, kind of with wild animals and things like that. So it all it all ties itself together really well. Um, but I'm going to stop talking now. I'm going to let you guys listen to Chelsea and her story. So episode 99, Chelsea, Dr. Chelsea Anderson. Enjoy, guys. I had intended on moving there the summer, end of summer of 2020. Okay. And Andy and I were traveling and we had to come home early because of covid and so I sort of emergently moved to Montana in the middle of winter with nothing but clothes for Southeast Asia. <laughs> oh. <laughs> nothing like being stuff. prepared. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, <clears throat> I don't want to get kind of too far into the weeds, but how was it that you and Andy crossed paths? Um, so we met through mutual friends that did an annual New Year's trip. Um, we both love to travel, obviously. And the trip was in Morocco. And I was newly out of a relationship and looking to meet young professionals and people who like to travel and like-minded folk. Uh, and we met on that trip and I was not interested at first, which he <laughs> is always quite upset about. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he, it was hard to say no to Andy. So yeah, we ended up reconnecting about a year after that. Oh, that's awesome. I always love to hear uh, stories like that, especially obviously with both of you being 2% certified or having businesses that are 2% certified uh, mm -hmm. is super cool. When I was talking to Jared, um, maybe a week and a half ago or so, I was just trying to um, get in touch with him and talk to him about like, hey, there's some guests or some businesses that I haven't had on yet. Can you make some introductions for me? Mm -hmm. Yours is one of them. And he would say, he said, oh, that's uh, Andy Austin's partner. I was like, oh, I've got Andy on the podcast next week. Like, yeah. I'll at least talk to him about it. And then Things snowballed and, and here we are like a week later. So no, I'm super glad uh, that we could find some time, obviously being on the road all the time for you. Uh, scheduling can probably be a bit hectic. It's hard to juggle the time zones with work <laughs> schedules that don't end at five. And yeah, it's hard to, to do stuff after work. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, being a vet and, and having your own, would you describe it as like a traveling practice? How would you describe it? So I think the closest thing that what I'm to what I'm doing right now is probably travel nursing. So okay. I am obviously a veterinarian. I am sort of self-sufficient um, and I get contracted by hospitals that either are understaffed or have somebody on maternity leave or somebody on vacation um, to kind of jump in and hit the ground running and um, work that way. So the travel aspect is slightly unique. It's not really a thing within our industry. It's starting to be a little bit more, uh, but 
I'm, I'm kind of forging the path. I had to make all the connections. There's no organization that does this for me. Um, it's been on my own time. Well, that was one of the things I was going to ask is, you know, if you kind of compare it to, to travel, um, travel nurse, traveling nurse, mm-hmm. um, which I, you know, I became more familiar with probably like shortly out of college when I had some friends that did that and, you know, just bounced around and absolutely loved life, um, you know, at that age, you know, making good money and seeing some really cool places and things like that. Was there, that was my question was, was there anything else, um, or, or anyone else that's out there kind of doing the same thing that you are? Because it seems like a, yeah, very kind of niche, but also at the same time, it's like, well, of course, like if nurses are doing this and doctors are doing this, like why aren't veterinarians like they're doctors as well? It's just doctors for, you know, for animals. So why, why wouldn't there be a need for it? I think there is a need for it. And I honestly, in the last couple of years since the pandemic, like our, so many industries have been just totally overwhelmed, but ours is definitely one of them. Um, I mean, people are burned out, they're quitting, uh, so many more people got animals. I mean, there's, I think there was recently an article in the New York times about this, um, basically just how the demand just increased exponentially. So there is especially a need right now just for vets everywhere. Um, and I just saw it as a unique opportunity for me to be self-employed, make my own schedule, which is sort of my top priority while also being able to come home and work in Connecticut, see my family still be working. So not taking PTO for it, but also, you know, go to places that I really like. Um, So yeah, it's been very, it's a lot of work, but it's been fun. Yeah, no, I mean, the, just, I guess the whole aspect of it, I, I, I find super fascinating because, you know, being able to to travel and see different parts of you know not only the country but I'm assuming the world as well like you're you're traveling outside of the U.S. Um, so I travel outside of the U.S. for work that's unpaid. Okay. So it's harder for me to get paid when I'm not working in the U.S. Um, just the way that the system works. Sure. That being said, part of why I wanted to do this is so that I could have the flexibility to go volunteer. Um, for three or four weeks, which is usually the minimum that most places require. Uh, And that is not sustainable if I'm in a traditional associate position within one practice. So I would not have the the time off to do that. Um, And that's been historic for me. I've always volunteered and, and have traveled all over doing that. So to be able to potentially make that as part of my job is really neat. Yeah. So let's kind of take a step back. Chelsea and and talk about how you kind of ended up down the path of becoming a vet, you know, uh, what did school look like? Did you know from an early age? Kind of walk me through the process here. Okay. Um, so I didn't, I think I knew at an early age, my parents told me that I knew at an early age that I wanted to be a vet. And I think it was this romantic, you know, dream that most kids have, you'll hear kids say that they want to be a veterinarian. Um, and I, I stuck with it and I don't really remember wavering with it. It was just this goal and I'm very goal oriented and type A and, you know, I had the plan and I followed the plan and it worked out for me. (laughs) It doesn't always work out for everyone. Um, But I I went straight from college into vet school. Um, I did my undergrad at the University of Connecticut. Go Huskies. Yep, go Huskies. Uh, And then I went on to Cornell for vet school. Connecticut, unfortunately, does not have a veterinary school. 
So I was looking out of state wherever I went. Uh, Cornell ended up being shockingly the least expensive of all the out of states. Really? Package that they gave me. I know it blew my mind. Um, and I also had a little bit of like my grandfather had gone there for engineering school. So it seemed like a really good fit. Bit uh, of a legacy. Oh, a little bit. Yeah. Um, although neither one of my parents went to college, so I was the first to really okay. pursue that. Um, but Ithaca, New York prepared me for Bozeman, Montana winters like I could never have imagined <laughs> because the winters are long and they're cold and they're gray. <laughs> so <clears throat> you uh, you graduate from, from vet school. Mm-hmm. Did you then take time to um, to work in a hospital or a clinic uh, or, you know, a practice or did you just kind of jump right into what you're doing now? Um, well, I went into practice at a hospital. Okay. Uh, I didn't do an internship. I instead went to an eight doctor practice where I felt like I could get good mentoring uh, and still make a decent salary. And the pressure of student loans is something that we all struggle with. And so I just didn't want to delay that another year making pennies as an intern. Right. Um, you know, for better or for worse, it has its place. But I did that in Connecticut for three years. And then I moved to New York City and I worked there for three years, also in an eight doctor practice. And I mean, those two jobs were amazing. They Certainly any job has its challenges. They were so busy. I had days where I just didn't even know if I wanted to do it anymore. Um, But they both gave me a really good foundation for practice, which I think is kind of essential. Um, So I would probably discourage a new grad from doing what I'm doing right now without having done that. Um, You have to be self-sufficient. You have to work on your feet. You have to be adaptable. You can't always be asking people questions. So you know, to be able to just jump into a new practice and hit the ground running, you can't still be learning the basics at that point. Yeah, kind of going back to the point that you had mentioned about, um, you know, always knowing that you wanted to to become a a vet and then, you know, sticking to the plan. We kind of talked about it before we started recording here, but I, you know, one of the reasons I find, you know, um, vet work so interesting is um, he's been arguably my best friend since I was probably in third or fourth grade, right? We just, our dads were friends. We were friends, played sports. We did hunting and fishing, all these things we did together. And I'm not even sure at what point it was, but he used to spend some time out in California um, during the summers with some family. And he came home one year and was like, buddy, I'm going to be a vet. It's what I want to do. It's like, okay, cool, man. I mean, we were like 14, right? At the time, it's like, yeah. Cool, man. I want to be an astronaut, right? Like, let's just, like, we're just saying things now. But, like, after that, every summer, he had an uncle who was a vet out in California. He would go out there in the summers. He would live with him, live with his family, and just work at his practice for, like, four summers in a row. And he never wavered from it. It's it's unbelievable the commitment um, that that vets have. Um, Because he went to vet school down in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. So, uh, was that Ross, maybe? Yeah, I have actually my college roommate um, went to Ross and graduated from there. Yeah, yeah. So he went to Michigan State at his undergrad and then to Ross Medical School. But like, you know, I mean, first off, it would be nice to go to school in the Caribbean because, you know, it's Caribbean. But the to move so far away from home and to to see the commitment and then to see what he's turned into now here in Michigan. I mean, that's that's where I take my dogs. Um, You know, there's it's super impressive whenever someone has that level of commitment. Um, 
to go to undergrad, you got postgrad and all that. And then, I mean, the just the work behind the scenes that goes into it is always uh, super impressive to me. Yeah, I mean, I think our profession definitely attracts people who are compassionate, driven, um, you know, just want to make a difference in animals' lives. And the more experience you get with animals, you know, his summer is going out to California, and I'm sure he did other either volunteer work or paid yeah. work, like leading up to vet school. There's so much variety within the profession, and it just kind of layers on and layers on. And I mean, it, it's such a rewarding profession. It's definitely challenging. Um, but I mean, I think back to some of the volunteer work that I did and I grew up with animals, but basic pets, like I didn't grow up on a farm. I didn't really have a lot of experience with things other than your typical dogs, cats, small mammals. Um, I did grow up with a family who hunts and fishes. So being outdoors and appreciating animals that way was always a driving factor for me. Um, but you know, those, those types of experiences as a kid just reinforce, you know, that wanting to, to have that be part of your job to work with animals hands-on and really make a difference that way. Yeah. So in, you know, since, um, since starting your own practice and I guess even before when you were working at the few different clinics and hospitals, were you kind of focusing on primarily like cats and dogs and small, small mammals, or were you kind of covering the gamut? Because I've seen, yeah, vets that are like, exotic animal hospitals, but they also treat dogs and cats. And then, you know, there's practices that just deal with, you know, your basic house pets as well. Yeah. Um, I think, I think it's harder to do everything now because, you know, places are more specialized and you don't have to, um, you know, there are practices that are unique to just being exotic animals and dogs and cats. You're not the one-stop shop like yeah. vets were maybe 30 years ago. Right. Um, both of the practices that I started in were dogs and cats primarily, but we would see small mammals, ferrets, rabbits, guinea pigs, hamsters, mice, um, occasionally reptiles, occasionally birds. Uh, famously, my first patient I ever saw once I graduated was a, a snake. <laughs> Uh, and it was a wild snake because oh. I, I had graduated, but I was waiting for my license to come in. And so I couldn't practice on owned animals. And somebody brought in this wild black rat snake that had gotten tangled in a blueberry net and was totally stuck. And I am a baby vet. I've never worked before. And I have this wild snake like lunging at me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, uh, do I regret this? <laughs> Instantly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so most of my experience professionally has been with pets. Um, I would love to work in wildlife and a lot of my volunteer experience leading up and through vet school was with wildlife. The problem is that it's very hard to pay your bills because those those are usually not paid jobs. Okay. Um, it's hard to get a paying wildlife job and they do exist. Um, but I think you know, for more recent graduates within the last 10 years, the student loans have really made it more difficult to take the job that you want to take necessarily right out of school yeah, that pays yeah. less. Uh, but hopefully I can get back to that. So when you're uh, traveling around to different practices and, and hospitals and things like that, are you, are, is it like, is it a very seamless transition for you? Because it seems like it'd be hard to kind of hit the ground running when, you know, I'm sure you've probably had 
you know, some type of correspondence, you know, leading up to, to, uh, your arrival. But, you know, you walk in, you meet the, you know, the technicians, you know, there's the front of the house, you know, there's the secretaries and everything like that. And you've got to, you know, instantly gel, right. Or, or, or do your best to do that because you don't want it to, to be a miserable two weeks if you just don't get along with anyone. I mean, what is that process like for you? Yeah, so there's a certain amount of vetting that goes on sort of beforehand, you know, conversations, Skype, Zooms, whatever, just trying to see if we're a good fit. I think I'm pretty adaptable, which might, you know, be to my benefit in this situation. Um, And I like it. I was just having this conversation with the owner of the clinic I'm in right now, who has been at that clinic for 30 years. He went there right after graduation, bought in and has stayed. And he's like, I don't know how you do this. Like, this would drive me crazy. Like, I would, I could never do it. And I like the variety. And I'm very lucky in that the hospitals that I have in my rotation right now, I really like and enjoy. And so it's not difficult for me to kind of slide back in. But there are definitely some basics, like different software programs. You know, I've kind of used everything at this point. I'm proficient in all of them. That might not be true for somebody who's only worked with one program. Um, you know, getting along with people, you just do your best, right? Like I, I think I get along with a lot of people. You're always potentially going to rub wrong with one person, but overall I really enjoy everybody I work with and, you know, just keeping a smile on your face and positive attitude goes a long way when you're the new person. Um, and asking questions like, I mean, I don't know where everything is the first couple of days that I'm there. And even, you know, if it's been six months since I've been there, I forget and I have to be reminded where things are. Um, but overall it's gotten easier. Um, now that I've, I've done this exclusively now for two years and it's a lot easier now than it was at the beginning. Yeah. So how did you even get started with that? Did you just call a lot of hospitals that maybe you had some type of interaction with, uh, prior to and say, here's what I'm doing. I've started my own business. Um, you know, if you, if you have a need or, if you know someone's going to be out or they're retiring and you need like there's like a transition period till a new doctor comes on. I mean, how did you kind of pitch it to um, a lot of the, the clinics and, and everything that you're working with? Well, I started doing relief work, which is sort of what we call this or locum work um, out of necessity because I had just moved to Bozeman, Montana, and I knew nothing about the veterinary practices there. And while I loved my jobs, I know that people do not always love their jobs. And so I just didn't know the reputations of any of the practices. And I just, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know a single veterinarian there. So I mostly did it as a way to sort of get a feel for what veterinary practice in Montana was like, since my professional experience was in New England and New York. Um, And so I did, I sent out emails and I made phone calls and I basically told people that I was available as a relief vet and, you know, gave them my availability and got booked pretty quickly with several practices. And then once I was branching out and traveling, that was mostly either practices that I had heard of or through friends that were looking for somebody Um, or like the practice I'm in right now, which I've been back to now four times over the last two years in Connecticut, they found me on LinkedIn randomly. They were looking for an associate, like a full-time job at their hospital. And I said, no, you know, I'm not available for a full-time position, but I do travel for relief work if you're interested. And it kind of went from there. Um, and that, I mean, this is probably one of the best practices that I work in. And also I'm next going to Boston 
and that's my classmate. So um, my friend that I went to that school with, she opened a practice there. And so she's going to a wedding and needing some time off. So I'm going up there. Oh, nice. That's, yeah. uh, I say, I would imagine that, you know, just the the classmates and everything that you had, you already have kind of a, a built-in network, right, of, mm-hmm. of people that landed, you know, probably all around the country in different practices in different hospitals. And, you know, you can kind of work on that. But <clears throat> You said you kind of have a, a rotation, right, of, of different practices that you're going to. Do, like, how far out are, are you being scheduled or what does that look like? Do you say, okay, I know in March, you know, for two to three weeks, like I'm going to be in Connecticut. And mm-hmm. then usually, like, you know, I know you said you're going to Boston, but maybe maybe you go and spend, you know, three weeks in Florida, right? I mean, how how does that all work, like the scheduling aspect of it? Yeah, so last year and the year before, I was booking like six plus months in advance. Um, and part of that was me adapting to it. Not There's a definitely a level of insecurity when you don't have work that is, you know, determined. Right. Like, it's not a job where I'm like, yeah, I'm in this job and I have this job until I choose otherwise. It's like, I only have work when I schedule work. <laughs> so um, part of that was me stressing more about that than I do now. Um, now I'm booking, I'd say a couple of months in advance, and that is more of a concerted effort on my part to not go crazy, um, because I will work inadvertently every day that I'm free, even though I'm not intending to do that uh, and miss the things, you know, that this job uniquely gives me the flexibility to attend. Um, so I pretty much let practices know that I'm booking for X number of months in advance. Um, If they know that they're going to be on vacation for two weeks and it's in December, then I'll happily block that off for them. Like that's far enough that it doesn't matter. Um, But that's typically how I do it. Everybody does it a little bit differently. Um, Andy will, my boyfriend will definitely acknowledge that I tend to be more stressed because I am a planner and this job is very difficult. That That is not Andy, at least by the sounds of it. From when I talk to him, no, he likes to fly by the seat of his pants. Yeah, we are, we, uh, I'll say we're opposite. Um, but maybe I should say that we complement each other well (laughs) in that aspect. Uh, but yeah, so I want to have it all planned out and I have to let practices know that, um, you know, what my availability is. Yeah. I mean, just like, like thinking about it and the, I mean, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm like a huge planner, but like for things like that, like I would most certainly want to have a plan because if you start trying to book things or especially from a work standpoint, right, where there's, you know, the the financial aspect of it and wanting to make sure, you know, you can pay your bills and, oh. and all those things, right? Like I like to, to have a plan, right? And, but when it comes to like, oh, we're going to like go here for a week of vacation or something like that, it's like, ah, we'll figure out what we're going to do when we get there. Right? Like we have a place to stay cool. Everything else will figure itself out. Right. Right. So as you go to these practices, um, is everything a lot more, uh, I guess kind of state of the art, these practices, or are you finding, you know, some that are, you know, like you, like you mentioned the one you're at now, the, the doctor has been there for 30 plus years. Um, do you find it difficult going from one that's maybe like, Everything, it's a new practice, right? You know, all the equipment is very new, very high end, as opposed to something that's, you know, a bit more outdated in terms of their equipment. So I, I'm i pretty flexible with that. And I think that um, 
my experience volunteering overseas prepared me for that because I've worked in places where there literally is nothing. And so having a microscope, even though it's 40 years old, is still a microscope where if I had never used anything that wasn't like the latest model, I might get really frustrated by that. And I think that my experience has allowed me to be more flexible that way. Um, generally though, I mean, I, I do practice and, you know, hope and pride myself in practicing a very high level of medicine and surgery. So if, if those standards aren't being met, then it's probably not a good fit for me. Um, but I mean, I do think that I have a breadth of flexibility when it comes to what the practice physically has, um, beyond that. So what's your favorite part about being a vet? What do you enjoy the most about it? Oh, this changes for me all the time. Sometimes I'll get these really complicated medical cases and it's just such a mental challenge and I love stretching my brain that way and like really figuring it out and treating the animals and I and I like that medical aspect of it. Other times it's a really cool surgery and I just feel really gratified, you know, getting to do that. And then I'll have weeks where I've just had like the best clients and pets and, you know, I really like the humanity like of being able to talk to people and be a part of their life in that way. So it constantly changes for me. And I think I think that actually has made it more sustainable for me to try and see these little pockets of of parts that I really enjoy. Um, it's a profession that people burn out in all the time and leave a lot and I'm trying not to let that happen. So I, I, it's more of, I guess, flipping my mentality to sort of see the positive because you can easily see the negatives with all the sick cases and the sad cases and the stress and the hours worked and all of that. And I think because I've, I've been able to create my own schedule and do this on my terms, it's been a lot more sustainable for me that way. Um, but really right now I'm enjoying so many parts of it. Sometimes that's different, but right now it's kind of everything. Yeah. No, that's great, Wade. At the end of the day, you're not kind of stressing about it or you're not taking work home with you. And I guess I don't, you know, going from practice to practice, like it, it, it certainly correct me if I'm wrong, and I don't mean this like in a negative way at all, but maybe a little bit easier to kind of detach yourself from things because no, you I'm know not- that that likely, you know, that follow-up visit in, in six weeks or, you know, a month or something like that, like you're probably not going to be there for that. Right. So you don't, whatever that may look like, you're not going to be involved with that. So it's a little bit easier to maybe put it out of your mind. Um, is that, is that kind of the case? Yeah. You know, um, when I left my job in New York, I, I was pretty burned out and it, and a lot of it was that my clientele were, very wealthy, very high maintenance, um, and required a lot of handholding. They were great because they would do everything. And so, you know, from that standpoint, they were incredible, but they were so draining. And so I left there just being really burnt out. And so, yes, to a certain extent, there is a little bit more of a hands-off approach, although I do like and enjoy the relationship building with clients. So it's not that I don't want to see your dog for the follow-up because more often than not, I want to do the follow-up, but you know, I'm not thinking about the same client that I know is like every couple of weeks comes in for this one thing. You're right. I don't have to deal with the sort of chronic aspect of that, but 
you know, it still happens. Like, you know, I've been at this practice for two weeks and I'm handling a case that's just a, a really difficult case. And, you know, I've seen this dog probably three times over the last two weeks and the owners are lovely, but they're very draining because <laughs> their pet is sick. And so it, it, you can't escape it. It's part of the job. Yeah. What's not to get too negative, but what's the most difficult part about the job? Um, I mean, I think not being able to help because of financial means is a challenge for all of us, you know, people that can't afford to treat their pets is definitely frustrating and also understandable. You know, cost of care is expensive. Our medicine has gotten so much better. We're doing surgeries that have never been done before in animals. People expect that because their pets are now a member of the family mm -hmm. and, you know, they want to be able to provide them with that care. Hospitals are open 24 hours a day, fully staffed. You know, that costs money. Um, and so, Luckily, I don't run into that too often, but that is probably one of the more frustrating things to know that you could help, but you can't. And, you know, there are some funds that help with that, but inevitably every now and then you'll see a case like that and it is hard. Um, yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, I have a friend who is a vet and it's nice because, uh, you know, my, uh, my, she's my wife now. She was my girlfriend at the time. We we bought a dog together, um, you know, a little uh, a black lab, and you know it was. I had pets growing up, but the responsibility side of it, you know, certainly fell on my parents. And and the same with her. She had pets growing up, so when it came time to, I mean, yeah, I would feed the dog, pick up after the dog, you know, the basic things that kids do, right? But then when the 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 sole kind of well being of the dog falls on your shoulders. Uh, it's certainly a lot more to, to take on. And I mean, I was in my, gosh, mid-20s probably when when we got her. Um, it's it's nice to have someone to just call or shoot him a text. Hey, my dog's acting like this. You know, what do you suggest I do? Right. And it's, uh, it's, I don't know sometimes if people like understand like how big the responsibility is. Um, but then also, like you said, like becoming part of your family because, so many people, especially, you know, younger people, right? Like that's, that's kind of their way to kind of ease into the whole having to care for, for someone else. Right. And I, you know, the pets that I had growing up were always inside dogs, right? We would let them sit on the couch, you know, and I, I understand, I mean, everyone is different when it comes to their dogs, you know, they don't allow them on the furniture or on the bed at night or whatever the case is, but our dog went everywhere with us, right? Like she was, she was our pal. She was our buddy. And, you know, it's, uh, it's certainly, um, an aspect of the family that like, you know, that, uh, you know, barring something catastrophic or tragic, like you're going to outlive your pet. Right. And I don't think at least for us, it wasn't until, you know, as a lad that she hit like 10, that that really set in with us, mm -hmm. um, especially my wife, um, that, you know, the day is going to come where, you know, either she's not going to be awake in the morning or we're going to have to to take her in, you know, and, and, you know, unfortunately, probably a month ago, we had to we had to make that tough decision. And leading up to it, I told myself, like, I, I understand what this is. I'm prepared for it. And then having to go through it was oh, the one of the worst days that I've had in a really, really long time. And I don't know. 
I, I, as a vet or a doctor, I, that's something that I would never get used to. Right. And that would be super difficult for me. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your dog, by the way, we all go through it and never gets easy. Like it's never easy. Um, for the most part, uh, I will say that euthanasia is a gift, um, because I don't know if you've had grandparents or elderly family members that you've watched, you know, maybe not pass away peacefully Mm -hmm. or a really prolonged end of life. And I think it's, there is something to be said for not having to let our pets necessarily suffer. Um, like I said, it doesn't get easy. Um, but usually when we've reached that point, it's because it's warranted. Um, thankfully, you know, I, I don't personally see a lot of cases that aren't that. I know I have colleagues that occasionally will have to do behavioral euthanasias and young dogs that just are super aggressive or have bitten multiple people. And that's harder. Like for sure, that's harder. Um, but you know, if it's an elderly dog that has, you know, four different disease processes and they're suffering and their quality of life is nothing. Sure. It's never easy, but I at least understand and can make peace with the fact that it's in the best interest of the animal. Yeah. And that's, I mean, our dog was, she was over 14, you know, as a, as a lab, I mean, a a bigger breed, Mm -hmm. you know, I felt like she had lived, I I not felt like, I mean, I know she had lived a good life, right? I mean, she, you know, was very well taken care of and, you know, got to do, you know, a ton of stuff. And, um, you know, I was fortunate that, um, my friend who, um, is a vet here in Michigan, he owns multiple practices. And the one that he owns that's closest to us is, um, he's only there like one, two days a month, right? He, he bounces around or he has like his home practice. Um, and he had texted me that morning and said, and saw my name, um, you know, saw the appointment and everything and said, take your time. I'm not going anywhere. And having someone there who you know and you trust and has, you know, seen your dog multiple times over the years, like it certainly helped um, with the process. But yeah, I mean, for, you know, for any pet owner out there, it's a it's a very sad, sad day. But you know that, like you just said, in the end, it's it's the right thing to do because, you know, that's I think that's one of the toughest parts about a dog getting older is you know, unless they're outwardly showing that they're in pain, like it's hard to know if they are even, you know, though, you know, she eats fine and she, you know, putzes around a little bit, or maybe she doesn't get around so well, like, you know, they're probably in pain. They just aren't expressing it outwardly, you know? Right. And I would also add that, you know, because our care has gotten better and people want to take better care of their pets, they're also living a lot longer, which means that we're seeing a lot more of these sort of end of life things, you know, they're not dying at a young age from treatable diseases or because they got hit by a car, although that certainly happens. You know, a lot of our pets are living into the upper ends or beyond their expected lifespan. And so we're seeing more of the old arthritic animals that are just slowly declining because their bodies are failing them. Um, And that's harder in a sense to see that because it is more of that, you know, just age related changes. Um, And yeah, it is tough. I mean, I coach people through this every day and, you know, try to at least make sure that their pets are comfortable and we sort of have a plan in place and they have things that they can recognize about their animals um, that might help them in deciding that maybe their quality of life isn't as good anymore. 
but it's definitely a, a, a challenging aspect of the profession. Yeah. Well, enough about the doom and gloom. Let's, yeah. uh, <laughs> sorry that it took a turn there. Like, I, yeah, I mean, you just kind of go, <laughs> yeah, you kind of go with the conversation, but you know, uh, unfortunately that, you know, in your line of work, I mean, that's certainly part of it, but I want to talk about how conservation, um, ties into to all of this because um, I believe you're the only um, veterinary practice um, that is 2% certified, which I think is super cool. So kind of walk me through that, you know, how you learned about 2% for conservation and, you know, why conservation is so important to not only you, but, you know, what you're doing as a vet as well. Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, I have always had an interest in wildlife and conservation separately. I actually minored in wildlife conservation in college. There you go. And uh, for me, it always started with the animals. Like I just loved all the exotic animals and I loved the animals I was seeing in my backyard. And it was really in a wildlife conservation course that I took um, my junior year of college that the concept of managing wild populations first like had a light bulb moment in my head that really we're managing all wild populations now yeah um and so it was just really interesting to me and so that course had a really cool aspect of it where after the end of the semester we actually went to south africa for six weeks and studied wildlife and so that was kind of the seed for me um, beyond, you know, fishing with my parents and, you know, going on hikes and appreciating the local wildlife. That was the first time that I really got to understand what, you know, it looked like to manage a wild population. Um, and, you know, fast forward a couple years and I'm in vet school and I had a really cool opportunity to work in Uganda in Africa uh, with a, a small animal vet, but because he was the only vet, he also did everything. And so we did quite a bit of work um, with the wild chimpanzee populations. And so I got to do that. And then the following summer, I went to Indonesia and got to do a cool project looking at the rhinos there. And so I just was kind of getting all this just amazing experience working with truly wildlife. Uh, and while my profession doesn't do that, that definitely has kind of been my biggest passion outside of my work. So for me, I heard about 2% um, through my soon-to-be brother-in-law, Paul Kemper, and he encouraged me to look into it. And I mean, philanthropy has just been a really big part of what I like to do in my spare time. And so it felt really aligned with, you know, wanting to protect our wild populations everywhere, not just in the U.S., but the world giving my time for that. I'm happy to give my money to that um, and really spend what I can, uh, both time and money, doing what I can for the wildlife. So that was my introduction to 2% and also some of my background with wildlife. So what conservation organizations are you, are you working with? Are you giving back to? Um, so right now I'm giving um, and volunteering with GVLT, um, which is the Gallatin Valley Land Trust. And so they manage our trails outside of Bozeman and a lot of the land there. And I'm an avid hiker. It's, you know, what I, one of the things I love about Montana. And so that was a very, just felt like a very applicable way for me to do something, you know, tangible where I use those trails all the time. And so um, it almost felt like I... I owed it to the trails to really help. 
and then last year I donated to World Wildlife Federation. Um, I'm looking to get involved with Working Dogs for Conservation, which is an organization uh, based in Bozeman that helps uh, train working dogs to help with conservation efforts. Um, so that's kind of on my radar for this year, hopefully. Yeah, the the GVLT is one that I hear a lot from um, Bozeman or you know, kind of the greater Bozeman area um, businesses. Uh, and they all kind of have the same reason, right? Like they love the outdoors and, and the local trail systems and everything. And it's 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 very easy to want to give back where you're doing a lot of your recreating. And that's one of the things I love about um, businesses or individuals who are, are giving their time locally because, you know, they they feel like they can have the kind of the biggest impact. And especially if they're, you know, whether it's hunting or fishing or just, you know, general outdoor recreating with hiking, bird watching, camping, you know, whatever the case is. And to to see the importance to want to give back to the places that you're spending your time, um, I think is is awesome. And I wish that, you know, even if you're not going to be 2% certified, right? Like if you're enjoying, you know, your kind of local, uh, you know, public land or state land, federal land, whatever the case is to, to give back to that land that so many other people are using, um, I think is uh, the right thing to do kind of no matter how you look at it. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like 2% is kind of a no brainer and should be for so many people. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, it just seems like so obvious to me. Like, why wouldn't you give time and donate a little bit of money towards the causes that really are important to you? And, you know, the certification isn't as meaningful to me personally as just the act of doing it. So, um, it, yeah, it just was exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. And the fact that you just said no brainer and anyone who's listened to the podcast for any amount of time, they've, they've heard me kind of respond to people when they say that is like, that's like, kind of like the magic words, right? Like, you know, you ask people, you know, like, why did you want to become uh, 2% certified and, you know, things like that. And they kind of explain the process and then they always close it out with really in the end, it was a no brainer, right? Yeah. And that, that's almost like music to my ears when I hear people, um, you know, it's just, it, it's almost like, why wouldn't you do it? Mm -hmm. Right. And sometimes it's, it's a shame when you look at, you know, all of these companies out there that are, you know, in some way, shape or form, um, selling to selling some type of good or service to, uh, you know, people who are, are hunting or fishing or doing some type of outdoor recreating and aren't giving back at, at all. And, and there's certainly a lot of companies out there like that. Um, it makes me scratch my head because I don't understand why if you're selling a, you know, an item that is going to help you take something from the land, like the least you can be doing is is giving back to that land that your customers um, are using and the wildlife that they're taking off of the land. And I think what I love most about 2% and the businesses, I mean, there are certainly some really big names, uh, big name brands and businesses that are 2% certified, but it's a lot of smaller brands, a lot of smaller companies. And you know, companies, um, you know, like for yourself, for example, I mean, you're self-employed, right? I mean, it's just you and that's, you know, money coming out of your pocket uh, at the end of the day. But, you know, you still see the importance of that. And there's these bigger companies who make, you know, more money than you can shake a stick at. And they're like, nope, we're just going to hold on to it. And, you know, we're, we're not we're not going to do we're not going to get involved with that. And it's uh, it's really kind of sad when you think about it like that. Yeah, I mean, I almost feel like volunteerism 
in a sense, should be required of every person, period. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, the world would be such a better place if everybody just donated X amount of time to make it better. And I feel like 2% is the initiative that sort of realizes that, um, you know, not just with wildlife, but in general, it just kind of sparks that within people. So more people should do it. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, it's not even like every single person has to give you know, the 21 hours that's required of like 2%. Like if every person, you know, or every household, let's say, donated 10 hours of time to, you know, uh, a habitat project or, you know, a river cleanup or a trailhead cleanup or whatever the case is, right? I mean, the the things that you can do for conservation, like the list is, is endless for the most part. Like, I mean, just imagine how much better our wild places would be if, if people took that approach. I mean, in, in 10 hours, I mean, that's, you can take yeah. a family of four out for a morning on a weekend and, and put your time in. And, you know, there's something tangible, like you mentioned earlier, that that comes out of that. Like you can see the difference that you make um, compared to, you know, when you started to when you finished. And I mean, that, that 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 gives you a really good feeling. Right. I mean, even what I like and what I hear stories about sometimes are, are people who are doing work for, let's say, a like elk in the Midwest, right? There's, you know, some states here that have elk and, you know, like Michigan, for example, you know, you can apply for an elk tag. It's, you know, for the most part, a once in a lifetime thing. And even that's not guaranteed. I mean, you can apply for 30 years and and never draw an elk tag, but there's still people in Michigan who are part of RMEF, for example, that go out and they attend banquets and they, you know, donate money and they donate their time for, you know, surveys or, or, you know, habitat and things like that you know, knowing that they'll likely never have the opportunity to, you know, try to harvest an elk here in Michigan. And, you know, those are the people who I think just are, are super selfless and they're, they're looking long-term, right? They're, 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 they know that the work they're doing is likely going to be uh, someone, you know, 10, 20 years down the road is going to benefit from that. And, and that's kind of the, the beauty that I, that I really see in conservation. Yeah, I think it's also that whole concept is reminiscent of, you know, the reason that we teach our kids about endangered species and things like that is that you're not going to protect or appreciate things that you don't know about. And so, you know, we have pandas that are endangered and, you know, the less sexy animals that nobody's ever heard about. But until you know what that is, like, why would you ever care about it or protect it? And so being out on the trails and actually picking it up and cleaning it up just gives you such deeper appreciation for what is there. Um, and you're going to be more likely to fight for it and protect it. So I think there's value in that. Yeah. So you said you grew up in a family that that hunted and fished. And is that something that you ever got involved with or maybe later on in life or, you know, what, what is your outdoor experience from that side of things look like? More of the, call it the consumptive side. Sure. Um, so, yeah, uh, my dad always hunted growing up. And I think um, for me, it was just something that I grew up with. I went turkey hunting with him one time when I was a kid. And I got really nervous, I guess, and just started, like, uncontrollably coughing. <laughs> and I scared <laughs> all the turkeys away. So I wasn't allowed to go anymore. Um, I mean, for me, hunting doesn't feel right for me just because of my profession and the oath sure. I've taken, but I fully support it. And, you know, for I try to only really consume 
meats that have been sustainably harvested. And so game is a, a large part of our diet at home. Yeah. Um, and my sister hunts. Um, fishing, though, for me is like, I love fishing. I will go fishing any day of the week. I love it. Uh, I grew up saltwater fishing with my, my dad, mostly on Long Island Sound, um, but have definitely fished a little bit in Montana and hope to do more of that. So for me, that fishing really is kind of my passion. Andy hasn't talked you into joining him in the duck blind yet, eh? No, you know, it's often really cold in the duck blind. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the duck pastrami, I'm I'm there for that. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, the the benefits of wild game and I mean and the way especially if you prepare it right, if you have someone who knows what they're doing when it comes to, to cooking any type of wild game, because I feel like that's one of the things you hear from a lot of people is like, oh, I don't like venison or I don't like duck. Right. Like it's it, I just didn't like it. It's like, well, it probably wasn't prepared very well. Right. Like that's that's probably why, because I mean, like elk, for example, while I've not harvested an elk, I've I've certainly had it before. And like to me, for, for me, I mean, that's far and away the best meat that that you can eat and it's there's hardly anything out there that really holds a candle to it i'm with you on that i i think elk is like the best thing on the planet um the only thing that would rival that and so many people say they don't like venison because it's so gamey but the way my dad makes venison it was like my first true love when it came to meat so (laughs) yeah no i i agree with you yeah i agree with you uh in that regard a little salt pepper a little garlic and if it's just if you cook it to you know the right temperature and the right you know doneness i guess uh yeah it's you don't even taste the gamey the gamey part of it right so you're you're finishing up a stint um in connecticut there and then heading to boston you know what kind of does your you know the rest of your year um having you know have in store is there like any practices that you're really looking forward to visit or new places or you know maybe just big trips that uh you have kind of on the dock that you're excited about yeah um so i'm excited to spend most of the summer in montana uh which is always my goal to not travel as much and be home during the one of the best times of year yeah uh, although I was happy to be there for ski season this year too. Um, so I'm in Montana for most of the summer. I'm looking forward to um, working up in the Flathead for the first time. So I'm going to be up there for two weeks uh, in Kalispell and Whitefish uh, working. So hopefully get to enjoy Glacier on my days off. Yeah. And then uh, other than that, my vet school girlfriends and I have a really fun trip planned to Europe in the fall uh, to hike around Mont Blanc. So the tour de Mont Blanc. So it's a 96 mile hike around the mountain and you go through Switzerland, Italy, and France and a bucket list trip for us for a long time. And we're finally doing it. So we all love to hike. And if you can imagine hiking in the Alps and around that area is incredible. Yeah, no, that would be that would be awesome. I mean, that's that's a trip that I would love in the winter, um, just from yeah, a skiing yeah. a skiing aspect. Uh, well, I mean, like Chamonix, so there's some of the best skiing just in all of those little resort towns. Yeah, I mean, skiing the Alps is like a bucket list thing for me. I mean, I've been skiing since I was uh, very young, and you know, I, I mean, I, I'm in Michigan, right? And you know what the Midwest is like, and <laughs> you know, usually uh, either my wife and I or like groups of friends, like we'll, we'll go out West for, you know, four or five days, once or twice a winter. And it, while I love it, like I, and I like, I feel kind of snobbish even saying this, right. But it's like, 
I've, I've seen a lot of like, you know, the resorts, especially like in Colorado, like up and down like the I-70 corridor, like we've skied them all a bunch of times and like, I'm just ready for, for something new. And like to, to go to Europe is something that I, I long for. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. I'd love to do that as a ski trip as well. We grew up skiing in Vermont, so uh, <laughs> it uh, left a lot to be desired. I'm grateful for it, but now having also skied in the West quite a bit, it it's icy out east. I didn't fully appreciate that when I couldn't. I'd had nothing to compare it to. <laughs> yeah, and that's what everyone says, right? Is is out east like if you can ski out east, like you can ski anywhere, right? Just because you know the conditions and you know the the ice, as as you put it, right? Like it's it's much more prominent. But that's one place that I've never skied is like the Northeast and. Um, you know, I could probably get there in kind of a long day's drive and we just, for whatever reason, uh, me and my buddies haven't made it out there, but it's, uh, it's certainly on the list of places to hit for sure. Yeah. I mean, you can make a fun weekend out of it, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it's the best skiing in the U S and I might get a little flack for some levels <laughs> from that. <laughs> no, I, 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 I can't blame you for saying no. that. Cause yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Chelsea, we've been at it for almost an hour here. Um, which doesn't seem like that long. Um, I know that when you kind of get into talking about things that you're passionate about and things that you really enjoy, the time goes by pretty quick. But uh, no, I enjoy you making some time this evening. Um, it was great to to talk to you and to hear your story about everything that you're doing, um, you know, in the veterinary world. And, um, you know, I wish you, you know, the best of luck and hopefully we can get you on again in the future. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, for sure, we can do this again. I've got lots of stories. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, next time we won't have to talk about all the uh, depressing things. We can uh, focus on a bit more, yeah, the uh, the cool things that you've done and the cool places that you've visited. Exactly. All right, Chelsea. Well, have a good night. Take care of yourself, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Have a good night. All right, you too. Bye. Okay, well, there you go. Another uh, episode in the books here. Big thank you to Dr. Chelsea Anderson for joining me on the podcast today. I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast, uh, Wild Rivers Coffee, Go Hunt and Stone Glacier, as well as 2% for Conservation. Uh, please be sure to go out and support the brands uh, that support this podcast and help make it possible. Uh, and if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where they're going to post only positive conservation driven content. Uh, so you'll certainly enjoy that. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for tuning in this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, as always, check out theaverageconservationist.com. Stay up to date on all the latest podcast episodes as well as pick up some gear uh, to help support conservation um, and get ready for the summertime. So as always... Stay safe and remember that conservation starts with you.